right, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for the final message in our Art of Neighboring series. We've been talking about this idea of what would it look like to live uh, as intentionally as a gospel neighbor when Jesus gave that command to love your neighbors yourself. What if just by random chance he actually meant my little neighbors in the context of that? And so we've been looking the last few weeks about this idea of gospel neighboring. And so today we're going to wrap up the series on this idea of gospel neighboring. Now, if you think about it, uh, in the last series we taught at the beginning of the year, the last message I taught was about the idea of going urgently to your neighbors and the nations. And then we segued that right into the series we've been in. We've not focused on the nations part as much, but more on the neighbors part these last few weeks. And so for the last four weeks, counting today, we've been talking about this idea of evangelism. What does it look like to live as a missionary in the neighborhoods God has placed us? And so we're going to wrap up that evangelism conversation this morning. And some of you are probably thinking, good, amen. Let's stop talking about evangelism. Let's start talking about something easier like tithing and hell, right? Like let's just get off this subject. And so we're going to wrap it up this morning. And next week we'll start a new series called Spring Cleaning. And uh, so, but this morning, here, here's a disclaimer. We're going to talk about what I think is probably the least exciting, but the most important aspect of gospel neighboring. And so, so this morning is probably the least exciting, but the most important aspect of gospel neighboring here in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2. And so, and here, here's why I want to wrap up this series with this, because here's my concern. So for three weeks now, we've been talking about what it looks like to take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. And my concern is this. My concern is if we don't talk about what we're going to talk about today, then, then we're going to walk away from these last four weeks simply as more informed sinners. More educated, we, we could explain biblical hospitality, we could explain seeking justice on our neighbor's behalf, we could talk about our convictions that drive us to go urgently both to our neighbors and the nations, but if we don't put into practice the things we're going to talk about today, then what's going to happen is this, we're going to have some good notes in our Bible that we can pull out for reference, we're going to be more informed, but we're not going to be transformed, it's never going to show up in our real lives, and we'll understand gospel neighboring, but we'll never participate in it, is my Concern. So this morning, I want to explore two just final key steps in this area. Uh, and here's my promise this morning. I, I want this to be uh, practical and encouraging. And, and here's the deal. Um, if, if you'll do what I'm, if you'll listen and take notes and actually apply what I'm going to teach this morning, then, then listen, this is something everyone uh, can do, should do. And it's not the most exciting thing about gospel neighboring, but it's the single most important thing as it relates to gospel neighboring. Okay? So, so uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want to look this morning at verses 1 down through verse 8 uh, together. Uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, uh, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of, of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. I guess they, just in case you're wondering, Paul says, I'm not, I'm not lying here, right? And so uh, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so we've talked about this idea of gospel neighboring and seeking justice on behalf of my neighbors. We've talked about reallocating our resources on behalf of our neighbors. We've talked about biblical hospitality. And so I want to talk about two final things here in gospel neighboring. So the first thing I want you to understand, if you're going to be a gospel neighbor, you've got to do this. You've got to quit trying to participate in supernatural work with human effort alone. That, that when you think of your evangelism efforts, when you think of sharing Christ with your neighbors, when you think of this idea of being a gospel neighbor, here, here's the problem. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. God draws people to himself through the Holy Spirit. God saves people. God keeps people saved. And if you're not careful and you forget that, here's what happens. When you think of evangelism or gospel neighboring, you think it's all up to you. How forceful is my personality? How, how good are my sales pitches? Do I know how to handle objections? How charismatic am I? How good am I? Say all those kind of things. Listen, you will never win anyone to Christ apart from the supernatural work of God doing what only He can do. And my fear is this, that with the reason we're fearful about evangelism is because there's so much emphasis on us and our ability to persuade or argue or debate or all those things, and there's not enough recognition that, hey, this is the supernatural work of God. And I don't know about you, but if it were left up to me, I don't have a lot of confidence. I, I'm not persuasive enough. I'm not aggressive enough. I'm not winsome enough. And so I have to remind myself, hey, listen, this is a, you're a small part of this equation. And if you don't remember that, you'll be trying to do things that only God can do. And one of the most important ways you can involve yourself in that supernatural work is through evangelistic prayer. Now, now, so many times, uh, most of our prayers are self-centered. God, help me with this. God, fix this. God, do that. And sometimes we move that circle out in a concentric circle. God, we pray for these people. They've got needs. They're sick. There's struggles going on. But we have to look at our prayers and say, hey, listen, it's not wrong to pray for ourselves and our needs. It's not wrong to pray for the needs of people around us who we know have struggles and challenges. But at some point in time, our circle of prayer has to go beyond that and say, Lord, here are my neighbors, literally and figuratively, who do not know Christ, and I'm asking you to supernaturally do what only you can do through the power of evangelistic prayer. Because if you don't, it'll be up to you and your sales training and your personality and your aggressiveness and all those things. And if that's what you're doing, let me ask you a question this morning, honest question. How's that working for you? My guess is it's not, Right? Because when it's left us, we're, we're fearful. What if I mess up? What if they ask a question I don't understand? What if they get angry? What, do I, all, these kind of, what if, uh, all these things are totally relying on us. And so when we think about this idea of evangelistic prayer, again, it's not the most exciting thing in being a gospel neighbor. But hear me, it's the single most important thing you will ever do if you're going to participate in gospel neighboring. And there's some fair questions when you think about evangelistic prayer. Is there not? Is it necessary does God respond to that? Is this a pattern we see? I mean, is this, do you ever see anyone in the Bible praying for anyone else to come to know Christ? If God is sovereign, then why should we even pray about these kind of things? And so do we see this pattern in Scripture? Overwhelmingly, we see this in Scripture. Let me just give you a, a couple quick hitters. Paul prayed for the salvation of the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, 
Paul was so passionate they would come to know Christ. Basically what Paul said, here's a paraphrase. Hey, Paul said, Israel, if I could go to hell on your behalf, I would absolutely do it. So Paul prayed evangelistically that Israel would come to faith in Christ. Stephen, as uh, prayed for those who were stoning him to death, he prays for their salvation in that very moment. Daniel prayed for the salvation of his people. Hezekiah prayed for the salvation of his wicked and unfaithful people. We see Samuel praying for evangelistically. We see Moses praying evangelistically. So all throughout the scriptures, we see people all the time praying that God would do what only he can do in the work of salvation in these people's lives. And it may not be the most exciting thing you do as a gospel neighbor, but it will be the most powerful and the most important thing you can be if you're a gospel neighbor. Now, so, so what does this passage teach? Because here's, here's the deal. This is basically a passage in verses 1 through 8 about evangelistic prayer. That, that's, this is probably the premier passage in the entire Bible calling us towards evangelistic prayer. And so some things we can pull out of here, some, some truths we see in this passage that, that are so important. The first one I want you to understand is this. There is not a single neighbor that you should not be praying for evangelistically. There's not a single literal neighbor, a person on your street. There's not a single person in your circle of influence, a figurative neighbor, that you should not be praying for evangelistically. Now, here's what I want you to think of this morning. In your neighbors, literal and figurative, in your neighbors, who is the person who is most unlikely to come to know Christ? Who's the most ungodly person that you can think of when you call that person to mind? If you're sitting next to them, would you just raise your hand this morning? Would you just do that? Like you think of a person, oh, they're so antagonistic towards Jesus. They're so immoral. They're so involved in, you know, pleasure. Money's their God. You know, whatever. Fill in the blank. Listen, listen, here's the deal. Sometimes if we're not careful, here's what we do. We look at those people, we say, you know what? They're never going to come to Christ. It's never going to happen. They're never going to give up that sin. They're never going to repent. They're never going to be interested. They've heard it a thousand times. They've sat in church. They've been, I've had conversations with them. It's never going to happen. But here's the deal. When you walk through this passage, you can never say with integrity that there is someone who's outside the scope of God's saving work. Now, here, here's the deal. There's a lot of debate about the scope of God's saving work. It's called the doctrine of election. And when we get to the doctrine of election, there's all kinds of theological conundrums. There's all kinds of questions uh, people ask. And so, does God only choose some for salvation? If God only chooses some, is that because of his divine prerogative or because in his divine foreknowledge he knows who would respond in faith? If God chooses some for salvation, does that mean he chooses some for damnation? And if he does, then how in the world are they responsible for a choice he made on their behalf? I mean, there's a thousand questions under the banner of the scope of salvation uh, that, that get debated all the time and have for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so let me make two statements on, on this subject, on this idea of election, the scope of salvation. Right? Let me make two statements. Here's statement number one. Statement number one is this. After 16 years of pastoring, I could go the rest of my ministry without ever having to engage in that conversation again. I've had, I've had that conversation a thousand and one times. Hey, what do you believe about this? You think God chooses people and doesn't choose some people? And, and what about this? Does he create some people to go to hell? And how is that their fault if God did that? All those, those kind of things. And so, so let, me, let, me just, let me just explain this to you. All right, so, so here's the deal. When it comes to this idea of election, there's always going to be some mystery. 
There's always going to be some mystery. How in the world do, do finite beings totally understand the work of an infinite God? When we talk about God in eternity past, although, listen, God is never, God exists outside of time and space. There is no eternity past with God. You're never, listen, if you want me to explain to you clearly the doctrine of election, come up and see me on our first day in heaven. I'll tell you as clear as I can, all right? On the first day in heaven, I'll explain it perfectly. There's mystery about it. Yes, God is sovereign, but yes, God gives us the ability to make real choices with real consequences, both good and bad. And so here's the deal. Don't let that mystery discourage you or even lead to doubts. Let that mystery lead to awe and wonder about a God who you can't even comprehend how he saves people. Let that lead to worship. That's the first statement I'm going to make. Here's the second statement I'm going to make. If you're listening, say amen. Quit worrying about God's part in salvation and start worrying about your part in sharing. All right? Quit quit worrying about, you think God, listen, quit worrying about what God does that you can't figure out and explain. Quit worrying about God's part in salvation and start worrying about your part in sharing. All right? And so, and so when you talk about sharing, a huge part of that, the foundation of all of that is evangelistic prayer. All right? Let me help you understand the context of this passage. Paul is concerned about the church at Ephesus, and so he tells his protege, he tells Timothy, he says, hey, listen, you need to write to them. There's some stuff they're doing that's totally off base. There's some stuff that's totally messed up. They've gotten out of whack theologically, and one of the things, and so in, in uh, chapter 1, go back to chapter 2, verse 1, and see the first word there. Chapter 2, verse 1 starts off with the word, therefore. You've heard me say this lots of times. Anytime you see the word therefore, you've got, got to ask a simple question. What's it there for? What he's saying there in chapter 1 is, I want you to straighten out all of this mess that the church in Ephesus has gotten in. And so he says, therefore, and then he goes into it, he starts listing all throughout this epistle, all the things that they've gotten wrong, all the things they've gotten off course. And the first thing he talks about is a belief that crept into the church in Ephesus that taught this, that only people who receive Christ and keep the Jewish law can be saved. Or if you're a Gentile, salvation is only available for a certain group of people who kind of get to this mystical, enlightened kind of state. And so, so basically what they were teaching is this, is that salvation is not available to all men. And Paul said, Timothy, the first thing I want you to do is to straighten out that mess and tell them Christ died for everyone. Christ gave himself as a ransom for everyone. The will of God is that everyone would come to salvation. So uh, one of my professors, when you talk about uh, this idea of Christ dying for all, uh, one of my late professors at Liberty used to have a saying I'll never forget as long as I live. He said, when you think of the scope of God's salvation, Christ gave his life for all men. He said, here's the phrase that I want you to grab onto. He said, all means all. That's all all means. All right? He said, so whenever you see the word all, that's exactly what it means. So did Christ die for the sins of everyone? Well, let's just let the text uh, speak for itself, all right? According to verse 1, who should we be praying for? Let's read it together. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for which men? All men, right? There, there's not a single person who should be outside the scope. We should be praying that they would come to know Christ, all right? And, and then uh, according to verse 4, who does God desire would be saved? Look at verse 4. Who desires which men? All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And according to verse 6, who did Christ die for? Look at verse 6. Who gave himself a ransom for, say it, all. Now, is this the only place this is taught in Scripture? 
that the scope of the, the saving work of Christ is unlimited. Uh, let, let me just rattle off all kinds of verses. There's just a handful. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says this. We have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially to those who believe. So if Christ is the Savior of all men, then why doesn't everyone go to heaven? Because some people choose not to believe. The reason people don't go to heaven is not that Christ didn't die for their sins, it's unbelief. That's why. Uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Uh, Acts chapter 17 verse 30 says, God commends all men everywhere to repent. Acts chapter 2 verse 21, And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans chapter 5 verse 6, You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? For the ungodly. Everyone who doesn't know Christ is ungodly. Christ died for all of them. 2 Corinthians 5, for love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. Jesus said this, go and preach the gospel to which, who? To every creature. Acts chapter 3, verse 26. Peter's there, he's talking to the Jews, and here's what he says. Unto you first God has raised up his son Jesus. He sent him to bless you, to turn away every one of you from your iniquities. Not, not some of you, not a chosen few of you, to turn every one of you away from your iniquities. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. First John chapter 2, verse 2. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's talking about believers. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know what that means? That that person in your mind, your neighbor, in your circle of influence, who you think they'll never get saved, they're outside the scope of God's salvation, they'll never turn to Christ, here's what I want you to understand according to these passages. You should be praying for them. Christ gave his life for them, and he traded himself as a ransom on their behalf. There's not a single neighbor you have who's outside the saving grace of Jesus Christ, and the will of God is that every single one of them would be saved. Is that not good news? That person who's far from God, God looks at him and says, I died for you, and the will of God is that you would come to know me as Savior. So you know what? We should be praying towards that end. We should be engaging ourselves in evangelistic prayer. You know what else that means? If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, and your life is you think I'm far from God, I'm involved in all kinds of sin and immorality and all those kind of things, here's what I want to share with you emphatically from this passage. And all these verses I read, hear me this morning. Christ died for you. Christ gave his life as a ransom for you. I don't care where you've been. I don't care who you've been with. I don't care how far from God you are. I don't care how immoral you've gotten. I don't care if you were drunk last night. Christ died for you. He gave his life as a ransom for yours. And you can experience his saving grace this morning. That's exactly what that means. Now, you say, I'm not totally convinced. You read a lot of verses. You're talking fast. You're even sweating a little bit. But I'm not convinced, right? Go back to verse 6. This is fascinating. Go back to verse 6. Verse 6, it says this. Who gave himself a ransom for all. Now, now we understand what a ransom is, right? But you get the idea of someone's kidnapped, and so you, you pay a ransom, and you give them that ransom. They, they release the captive. That, that's a ransom. In the Greek, that's not the type of ransom that's being described here. In the Greek, that word for ransom is the idea of a substitutionary ransom. What, what does that mean? It's the idea of this. So let's say that, let's say that one of your children had been kidnapped, and uh, depending on which kid and which day of the week, you're deeply burdened, right? Some days not as much. Let's just be honest, okay? 
And it's not the idea of you going to kidnap her and say, hey, listen, I'll, I'll cut a check, right? And you, I'll give you that money. You no, no, the idea here, the word ransom in the Greek, is the idea you go to the kidnapper and you say this, you know what, um, I don't, I, in, take me in their place. Let them go and you can have me. That's the idea of ransom. You know what it's saying here? That Christ looks at us in our helpless condition, didn't just say, hey, I'll pay their bail, I'll, I'll do the bail here. He said, no, no, take me instead. I'll stand in their place. That's the idea here. That Christ became a victim on our behalf. That he traded places. It's a substitutionary ransom that's being described here. And who did Christ do that for? Go back to verse 6. Let the text speak for itself. Who gave himself a ransom, a substitutionary ransom. Who gave himself a ransom for who? What's it say? For all. For everyone. And so the reality is we should be praying towards that end. Now, this is not in the scope. This is in the text. So I have to say this. I cannot Look over this uh, here in verse 2, uh, chapter 2, in light of all the political tension that we find ourselves in. Okay? Did you know this, that not everyone agrees politically? I don't know if you knew that or not. Did you know that? Did you know that some people get mad about politics? Did you know that? Some people get mad about politics? I fought a person out here on the parking lot one time. I don't know how old she was, I mean, I, but I, I, I won. I just want to say that, all right? Right? She may have been 90, but I won. Here's the deal. You know what we think? That if we're going to change the world or change our country, it's by the church becoming political agitators. We're going to change the world that, that, that if our political party, whoever you vote for, I don't really care, that, that, that if your political party could get into power, you could change the world. And, and let's just be honest. Uh, when we pray for people in, in civil leadership, you know what we normally pray? If it's the person we voted for, God bless them and give them wisdom. If it's the person we didn't vote for, God get them out of there. Am I right? But did you know this? The most important thing you could pray for anyone in civil authority, whether you voted for them, whether they're your political party or not, the most important thing, what you should be praying, is they would come to know the Lord as their Savior. You say, oh, I don't, look, 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 look at verse 2. He says, for kings and all who are in authority. What's all mean? All means what? That's all all means, right? For, for everyone, whether you voted for them or not, for kings and all in authority that may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. You know what he's saying in verse 3? The will of God, God is well pleased when you pray for them. And what should I pray for them? What's the context of this passage? Praying that everyone, including those in civil authority, that they would come to know Christ as their Savior. You say, what would happen if all those people, even the ones I didn't vote for, came to know Christ as their Savior? Well, what does verse 2 say? For kings and all who are in authority, that, or in other words, cause and effect, that's what that means, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. Listen, if you want political peace, it doesn't come by being a political agitator. It doesn't come through rallies. It doesn't come by your party getting more power. This text, the authority of God's word says this. If you want political peace and peace in a nation, the key to that is that everyone in leadership would come to know Jesus as their Savior. And if you would pray for that, that is good and pleasing in the sight of God because the overflow of a changed heart is they'll rule in such a way that there's peace in the land. Listen, the hope of America is not your political party. The hope of America is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what this passage is teaching. I don't know why I said that. All right. A little rant there. It's in the text, though. Amen? What else should we do when you're praying evangelistically? 
I got to pray realizing that no one is outside of God's saving grace. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 6. Even those in political leadership, I should be praying for them to come in faith in Christ. Verse 2, verse 3. Here's the other thing. If I'm going to pray evangelistically and be a gospel neighbor, you've got to make sure evangelistic praying is not hindered. You say, what would hinder my evangelistic praying? Look at verse 8, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, I desire therefore. In other words, of all these things I just told you to pray for salvation of all men. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere. It gives two things. One, lifting up holy hands, and two, without wrath and doubting. Now, why, why does he say that? He, he's not talking about the literal lifting your hands when you pray. That was a part of, of, of their culture. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing right about that. What he's basically saying is this, that, that the hands are symbolic of our activity. The most of the activity we do involves our hands. And so here's what he's saying. You lift up holy hands. He said, your hands are clean before the Lord. He said one of the things that will hinder your evangelistic prayer and the effectiveness of that is that you're involved in, in unclean living, immoral living, unrepentant living, however you want to describe it. He says lift up holy hands. The word holy there, it means unpolluted or undefiled before God is exactly what it means. And so that will hinder your evangelistic praying. The other thing is this. Uh, he says an inner motive. He says without wrath and, and doubting. Without wrath and doubting. In other words, my motive is not... Oh, they're so wicked. God, the only thing that the, the, their hope is you can save them. They're so immoral, and I just wish you would do something in their hearts. They said, no, no, no. The motive is I love them. I love them. Look at, go back to verse 1. What's he say? Therefore, he doesn't say I command you, I'm an apostle. No, no, what's he say? I exhort. You know what that is? I'm begging you. I'm encouraging you. I'm pleading in love that you would pray for all men that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so the reality is the inner motivation is a deep burden that everyone, everyone would come to know Christ as their Savior. Why? Because he gave his life as a ransom for all, and it's God's desire that every man would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Here's the third thing, an evangelistic prayer. Uh, third thing is this, make sure your evangelistic praying is biblically faithful. What, what does that mean? When I first heard that I should be praying for people to come to know Christ, uh, you know what my prayer sounded like? I wrote down this list of people. I still remember this. I wrote down this list of people. Here's all the people that I, I knew that didn't know Christ or I wasn't sure if they knew Christ. And you know what my prayer sounded like? Maybe some of you are like, that's me, that's me. I just, whatever their name was, you know, I'd say, God save Joe. God save Bill. God save Sue. Like, I didn't know what else to pray, right? Just God save and I'd fill in their name. God save, fill in their name. God save, fill in Some of you are like, that's where I am, right? So listen, let me give you some things you should be praying so that you pray in a way that's biblical. Some things that you need to understand when you're praying. Hey, these are things that God has to do in this person's life. And so this is super practical. You can write down names. You can pray through this little uh, kind of list here. This is not a, an exhaustive list. You can find other lists like this. But this is one that is biblically faithful. So, so if you've got people in your circle of influence, your neighbors, literal and figurative, you say, besides just saying, Jesus, save them, what should I pray? How should I pray for these people? Okay, I want to make this as practical as I can. How should I pray for people who don't know Christ? Here's some things you could pray that agree with Scripture. Number one, pray that God would convict them of their sin and lostness. Listen, no one's going to get saved until they realize they're lost. Jesus is not attractive. The good news is not good until I come to embrace the bad news, that I'm lost and separated from Christ. Acts chapter 2 talks about this. John chapter 16, pray that God would convict them of their sin and their lost condition. Secondly, pray that God would open their eyes and reveal Christ as Lord and Savior. Matthew 16 talks about the 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, basically in a paraphrase. It says, their eyes have been spiritually blinded. 
They can't understand the things of God. They can't read Scripture and understand its truths apart from God opening up their eyes because they've been spiritually blinded. Pray that for them. Pray that God would draw them to Christ through the Holy Spirit. John 6, No man comes to the Father unless he's drawn by the Son. Pray that God would begin to draw people to himself. Pray that God would tear down any strongholds that keep them from salvation. What's a stronghold? It's something in their, your thought pattern. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, talk about strongholds in our thought pattern. Many people who don't know Christ, they've got their mind made up that if, that if I give my life to Christ and this will happen or I can't reconcile this belief, that's a stronghold in their thinking. Pray that God would bring those down. Pray that God would make their hearts receptive to the gospel. Matthew chapter 13. Pray that God would move them to repentance and saving faith. Ephesians 2 Corinthians 5, all all those kind of things. Listen, when you pray for someone, pray all of these things. Why? Because until God does what only He can do, then you and I have no power to win anyone to Christ. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote a book. It was called The Soul Winner. I had to read it in my college evangelism class. And our student pastor uh, got on his phone after the service. He said, hey, guess what? I got on, got on my phone afterwards, and it's a free download on Kindle. I, I didn't, didn't realize that. And uh, I tried to look it up on my typewriter, and I, could, I couldn't find it. So, but it's a book called The Soul Winner. And listen to this Spurgeon's quote in The Soul Winner about evangelistic prayer. Here's what he said. He said, one thing more. The soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. You cannot bring souls to God if you don't go to God yourself. You must get your battle axe and your weapons of war from the armory of sacred communication with Christ. Now we're going to wrap up this series today. We're going to start a new series next week called Spring Cleaning. We're going to talk about getting rid of gossip and getting rid of envy and how to deal with all these things that get into our lives. And so so here's the deal. You you may have gone through this whole series and say, you know what? I'm not going to seek justice on behalf of my neighbor. I'm not going to practice biblical hospitality because my neighbors are weird. I'm not going to share my resources. You may say, I'm not going to do any of those things. Listen, if there's one thing you do as a result of being this gospel neighboring series, do this. Write down the names of people you know that don't know Christ and pray for them evangelistically every single day. It's the least exciting thing you'll do. It's the most important thing you'll do in gospel neighboring. Otherwise, you're trying to do God's work in your own human efforts. It will never, never happen. What's the second thing we've got to do? Second thing is this. This is quickly. Second thing is this. You've got to get a grip on fear. You've got to get a grip on fear. I share with you the beginning that I want this sermon to be super practical, and so I'm going to share a couple things that I've shared in a workshop called Share Your Story about evangelism, because here's the deal. One of the reasons we're scared of evangelism is because uh, in our minds, we we think it's something uh, that it's not. Like in our minds, it's all these scary things, and it's not even those things. And so because of that, sometimes we're fearful, and so sometimes we shrink back and don't say anything, or maybe you're like me when I was younger, when I would get fearful about sharing my faith, instead of shrinking back, I'd just get really aggressive, which people really like, by the way, okay? I remember the first time I ever shared my faith that I remember I was 14 years old. I'd been a Christian for about six or eight weeks, so you can imagine how much wisdom I had, right? Low wisdom, lots of zeal. And I remember sitting in the living room of my best friend's house. I was there. He was there. We're 14 years old. I've been a Christian about six weeks. His mom was there as far as I knew. They didn't know Christ. And so we're sitting around. I don't know what we're doing, watching TV, playing car. I don't know what we're doing. But I decided that I was going to turn the conversation in a very natural way from my perspective into a gospel conversation, whether they wanted me to or not, right? Amen? And so what I said, I don't remember what I said before this. I said, guys, I said, I've got some bad news. 14 years old, 
And they said, what's that? And just as smooth as I could, as winsome as I could, I said, you're going to hell. <laughs> now, shockingly, no one got saved that day, right? Like, no, no one was interested in Jesus with that opening line, right? And so sometimes we fear, like sometimes we just shrink back. Sometimes we're like, oh, I'm just going to come on too strong and, and just listen. Let me tell you some things evangelism is not. Because if you think it is these things, you'll never do it because you're like, oh, that's not me. I can't do that. It's not my personality. So let me just tell you practically some things evangelism is not. I've been teaching this in our workshop. I want to be really practical. Let me tell you some things that's not. It's not a debate. If that's in your mind, like, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to talk to this person, and what happened? Oh, it's great. We had this huge argument. It's fantastic. Listen, listen, listen. When the Spirit of God is working on someone's heart, drawing them to himself, they don't argue. They have questions. They're actually interested. Why? Because God is at work drawing them to himself is what the Bible says. So it's not a debate. If a person wants to debate, guess what? The Spirit of God is not at work on their heart. Don't, don't engage yourself or even think about evangelism, this ugly, confrontational debate. They said this, and I said this, and oh, what about this, and what about this? And that, that's, that's not what it is. It's not a debate. It's not an attempt to turn green apples red. Listen, it's, you can't make someone interested in Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so if you're talking to someone, they're just totally not interested, guess what? The Spirit of God is not at work on their heart. You're, it's not your job to make people spiritually interested. It's our job to inquire to see if they are spiritually interested, if the Lord's at work on their hearts. It's not your job. It's not, it's not a failure if the person's not interested in receiving Christ. I shared and they didn't want to do it. I feel like a failure. No, 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 listen. That, look, here's what you need to understand. Evangelism is not an event. You know the average person hears the gospel over seven times before they ever respond in faith? And you may be time one, you may be time six, you may be time 30. And so it's not this event where this, you know, just kick the door open, I tried to have this, you know, create this event. No, listen, it's a process where God is at work on people's hearts, so it's not an event, you can't fail. Lastly, it's when someone doesn't want to receive Christ, here's what you need to understand. It's not a re they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. And so one of the reasons we're fearful is there's way too much emphasis on us and what we do and how we talk and what we say and how we respond and can we answer these questions. No, 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 listen. All you're doing is inquiring, being a gospel neighbor, praying for those people, uh, practicing hospitality to inquire to see, is the Lord at work drawing someone to himself? And they have questions I can answer. That's it. Now, but here's the most important thing. If you're going to get a handle on fear. If you're listening, say Amen. If you don't do this, I don't think you'll ever share your faith. That's how important it is. Ask God to grow your love for that person to the point where your heart becomes so full of love, there's no room for fear. Ask God when you think of that person who, who, who doesn't know Christ, when you're doing gospel neighboring, you say, I, know that, I don't think they know Christ, and I want to share with them, but I'm afraid... I don't want to make the relationship awkward. I don't I want to offend them. I don't want to just say, Lord, grow my love for that person where my heart is so full of love for them that, that fear has no margin to reside. And you're like, that, 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 that's not even biblical. It's absolutely, listen to what the Bible says. I'm just going to read part of this uh, this time. 1 John chapter 4 says this, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Listen to verse 18. There is no fear in love. Here's what it says, but perfect love casts out fear. Do you see that? 
Listen, it's not God take away my fear. That's not going to happen. Listen, I've shared my faith lots of times. I've got two degrees in theology. I can answer most people's objections pretty clearly, all right? Not everyone's, but most people. I still get afraid sometimes, right? So that's never, so it's not God take away all my fear. It's Lord, I'm afraid, but grow my love for that person to the point where perfect love has cast out fear. It's exactly what we should do. And so what, what happened? What does this look like, practically speaking? When you love your neighbors yourself, when you seek justice on their behalf, when you share resources that they have things in need, when you practice biblical hospitality, when you put legs under your love, guess what will happen? Your love for that person will grow immensely to the point where that love has cast out fear and you can be a gospel neighbor at that point. And if you do that, you know what will happen? Your neighborhood will become a mission field. And you know what will happen? You'll become a missionary cleverly disguised as an ordinary neighbor. Would you bow your heads this morning? If you're here this morning... And you feel like you're far from God. You feel like your life is messed up. You wonder if God even loves you after what you've done and where you've been. Hear me this morning. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, Christ died for you. Christ gave his life as a ransom for you. God's will is that all men be saved. And that includes you. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's the good news of the gospel. Today, right in your seat, right where you're at, you can open up your heart and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you pray right now and confess your sins and say, Lord, I've not been perfect. I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. Would you pray right now and confess that before the Lord? Would you acknowledge that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins, was buried, and rose the third day? And would you pray today and receive him by faith as your Lord and Savior? Christ died for you. His will is that you would come to know him. He gave his life as a ransom for you. And you can experience salvation today if you open up your heart and receive him by faith. Many of you are like me. You made that decision years ago, maybe even decades ago. But I just wonder in this room, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I just wonder in this room, who would raise their hand and say, hey, I've got a neighbor. Maybe it's a figurative one, someone in my circle of influence. Maybe it's a real neighbor. I've got a neighbor who either I know doesn't know Christ or I'm not sure if they know Christ. Would you just raise your hand and say, hey, that's me. I've got a neighbor who doesn't know Christ. Yeah, almost all of us in the room. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. It's the least exciting but the most important thing you'll ever do to be a gospel neighbor. Would you do this right now before the Lord? Would you just commit and say, Lord, help me haunt me with these truths that on a regular basis, if not daily, at least on a regular basis, I would be faithful in praying for the salvation of all my neighbors, the ones who live around me and the ones in my circle of influence. Because Lord, I believe you gave your life as a ransom for all. I believe you desire that all men would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, 
I want to be faithful and be a gospel neighbor. I want to pray for people who are my neighbors who don't know Christ. Would you pray that right now make that commitment to the Lord? Here's the second thing I want to ask you to pray. Would you pray right now? If a name comes to mind of someone you know who doesn't know Christ, or you're not sure if they know Christ, someone you know, would you pray right now, Lord, grow my love for that person to the point where my love casts out fear. God, grow my heart and my burden for that person where there's no room for fear to settle in in my life. Father, I pray this morning as we wrap up this series that God, we're we don't walk away with notes and a better explanation of gospel neighboring. God, I pray that we walk away from the series as missionaries cleverly disguised as neighbors. And that God, as we pull into our driveways and pull out of them every single day, as the weather gets warmer and we're outside, Lord, we would realize that the place we are at, we're not there by accident. And that, God, we will begin to see our neighbors through the eyes of Jesus Christ. We will begin to see our neighborhood and our homes, not as places of refuge and retreat only, but, Lord, as base for ministry and mission. That, God, we would look at our neighborhood as a mission field. And grow our love for those people, even the ones who've wronged us. And grow our love for those people. Whatever lives are changed, whatever opportunities we get to share Christ with people, we lay all those victories at your feet because you are able. And so find us faithful, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.